Hey folks, and welcome to the Growing Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Boychin. Our goal with this podcast is simple, to provide Alberta farmers and agronomists with timely, relevant, and valuable agronomic knowledge through interviews with experts in various fields of agriculture. We hope that the agronomic information from this and future podcasts brings value to you and your farm. And in this podcast, we certainly meet that goal. We speak with Dr. Hugh Becky of the Australian Herbicide Resistance Initiative. And on this podcast, we chat with Dr. Hugh Becky about his recent research paper titled Farming Without Glyphosate. So in this paper, Becky and his team outlined the use of glyphosate, risks of its loss, and some mitigation strategies needed in case of its loss. Uh, they also looked at models um, at, at what would happen in Australia if it if its loss did occur. Um, so we discuss in detail um, some of the features of his article um, and what they that may mean in terms of translation for Western Canadian producers. Um, Dr. Becky has immense knowledge in this area of research and provides great insight in this topic. So um, I, I really hope you enjoy it. I know I did. So. All right, here we go. So thank you, Dr. Hugh Becky, for joining me today. I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and maybe for those who don't know you, um, maybe it's a good idea to kind of introduce your history, where you've, where you've come from and where you are now, and, and maybe where your specialization is. Okay, well, I grew up on a mixed grain farm near Davidson, Saskatchewan. So that's in the middle of Saskatchewan. Um, so both uh, grain and livestock. And I uh, went, of course, to the um, local local school, then went to the University of Saskatchewan. First degree in geology, uh, and then the market uh, fell out. And so I went into agriculture, got a master's in soil science, and then um, I went to Winnipeg to do a PhD in uh, plant science. And it was really exciting times back in 1988 when I went to Winnipeg because this was really the first year that herbicide resistance uh, first case of herbicide resistance in uh, Western Canada. So that was very exciting. And um, after that, I went, came back to Melford, Saskatchewan, where I did a postdoc for, for just over a year. And then um, eventually uh, they moved me to Saskatoon, where I spent 26 years with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada as, um, as a weed scientist. So focusing on herbicide resistance, but integrated weed management in general. And uh, then this opportunity came in uh, Western Australia, uh, based at the University of Western Australia in Perth, uh, to be the director of ARI, which is the Australian Herbicide Resistance Initiative. So this is a this is an institute that has a national mandate in Australia to conduct uh, all kinds of research development and extension related to herbicide resistance. And so I took over from Professor Steve Powell's. Uh, who had spent 20 years in the job, so there were big shoes to fill. And so, uh, based here at the University of Western Australia, I'm also uh, a professor of wheat science. Um, and so, uh, one thing that's new to me is a lot more teaching than I did with, of course, with uh, with my former job with Agriculture and Food Canada. So, here I am, um, just over two years in, and um, I'm still standing. Are you uh, Are you enjoying the teaching aspect? I am. Um, Weed science, particularly here at the University of Western Australia, has been um, 
has been a much neglected discipline over the last few years. And so um, I think there was really a demand uh, both at the undergraduate and graduate level for for both practical and theoretical weed science. Uh, and so uh, anything that we can do to uh, increase that education in this area, as well as training future leaders in weed science, who of course will migrate worldwide and so it'll have a spillover effect. That's That to me is very rewarding. I, uh, I went to the University of Guelph and I had uh, Dr. Francois Tardif as, as my weed science um, professor. Yeah, good friend, um, yeah, good friend, good friend of mine, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he, he, had a, he has a spark for life, that guy, and I, I would have to say if yeah. there's anyone that really uh, pushed the interest in weeds into me, it was, it was certainly Francois, so I, I imagine you're looking to do the same out there, Hugh. Yeah, we both have a passion for weed science, which may seem strange to some people, but uh, we do love our weeds. <laughs> but um, we are here to talk about uh, the, the paper um, you put together, Farming Without Glyphosate. And um, maybe for those who haven't read it or aren't aware of it, um, maybe a brief overview of, of what the paper is, um, w what the goal of it was, um, and then maybe if you get any, you know, what kind of discussion came of that from industry? Was there any pushback or anything that way? Yeah, this paper, um, so I wrote it with uh, my colleagues in Ari, Ken Flower and Mike Ashworth. Um, Ken is an agronomist and Mike is a weed scientist, uh, much younger than me. Um, and this really stemmed out of a workshop that was held in Sydney in November of 2019. And so at this workshop, we had everyone from across the country, from all sectors, uh, from industry to governments at all, both the state and the federal level and agronomists, consultants, advisors, practitioners. So there was a, you know, there was a, a large contingent and the focus was farming in a herbicide limited world. Um, this was um, sponsored by GRDC, which is the Grains Research and Development Corporation, which are the main funding body for agriculture in Australia. And so they were, they were concerned about some of the trends they were observing worldwide, particularly in Europe um, with restrictions, increasing restrictions, uh, not only glyphosate, but other pesticides as well. For example, when you look at the UK, uh, they've lost two thirds of their pesticides in the last 40 years. And you know, that's a phenomenal uh, decrease. And the, the herbicides, for example, they're left with in the, in the United Kingdom, uh, you know, they're really limited in terms of what they can use, when they can apply it, how often they can apply it. And so this workshop uh, focused, of course, glyphosate was top and center uh, because it's our most important herbicide. But this workshop, this paper stemmed out of that workshop. And so we basically summarized what what the consensus was coming out of this workshop. And of course, there's a lot of guesswork. We don't, you know, a lot of these things are, are external to Australia, but um, we thought it was best to do some scenario planning just in case glyphosate is either restricted in Australia or elsewhere, or it's, uh, it's, uh, it, it comes to an out, uh, outright ban. So it, it sounds that it, like, this was done um, less out of condonement of okay we're heading in this direction and more of preparedness of yeah exactly um, yeah I think none of us really know what the future of glyphosate is uh, whether it's 
Western Canada, uh, or whether it's in, in Australia. And so this was really just to, okay, um, you know, this might be a possibility, uh, remote or otherwise. And so, um, you know, what do we do to do, what do we need to do now in terms of research, especially from a research and development perspective, uh, not just academia, but um, whether it's industry or governments, what do we need to do now just to start thinking about if it is, if we are faced with a restriction or ban on not just glyphosate, but other pesticides, you know, what research needs to be done now or in five years or over 10 years to to try and mitigate that that loss. So maybe maybe we take a step back a little. I mean, here in Canada, we, we know the value of glyphosate to agriculture um, and you know, we, we, we focus on the value regionally and, and maybe provincially of, of where we see glyphosate and understand that, you know, it's important for us for glyphosate resistant crops and to have that in rotation and, and uh, for pre-harvest measures and, and for pre-seed measures. But is this the, is this the, a consistent uh, position of value of glyphosate across the globe or um, is there differences in the value of glyphosate in, in different producing areas? Yeah, certainly um, in in the Americas, for example, whether it's North America or or South America, uh, Roundup Ready crops are much more prominent, um, whether it's Roundup Ready canola or soybean in Canada. Uh, in the U.S., of course, they have Roundup Ready uh, cotton corn, soybean, uh, which are grown on millions of acres. And then you look into South America and Brazil and Argentina, where Roundup Ready soybean is grown on vast areas. Uh, and so glyphosate uh, in the Americas especially is important. Uh, of course, uh, used post-emergence and glyphosate-resistant crops. But mostly in other parts of the world, including uh, uh, here in Australia, most of the glyphosate is used as a burn-down treatment um, before seeding um, in, in place of tillage, as you mentioned. Uh, conservation tillage or no tillage, zero tillage is, um, is really critical both here in Australia and in Western Canada, of course, because we're such moisture-limited environments. And so most of the glyphosate, for example, whether it's Western Canada or here, is either used preceding in the burn down um, to control weeds without tillage, or it's used at the pre-harvest pre window. Uh, so we're talking right now Western Canada where harvest is underway, uh, whether it's um, wheat, barley, or pulse crops, uh, pre-harvest glyphosate is commonly used to uh, control other uh, uh, perennial weeds or just to for even crop maturity. And so, um, this preceding pre-harvest window is worldwide, whether it's Europe, Australia, or or Western Canada, is probably more important than the uh, than in used in glyphosate-resistant crops, which is pivotal to that uh, low tillage system, minimal till system. Exactly, and you know we can't overstate the benefits of of whether it's no-till or or minimum till in terms of soil health. Um, crop yield, you know, crop, reaching crop yield potentials, yield stability, you know, in our moisture limited environments. Um, the, you know, we've really slowed down or, or reversed the, 
the year, the decades of soil degradation that had occurred up to the 1980s. And so uh, conservation tillage still does hinge on um, the availability of glyphosate. And, uh, and so um, it's, it's, that's why it's such a, con a concern, I guess, uh, to, to growers is, um, you know, we don't want to go back to tillage either here or Western Canada. And so um, if we lose glyphosate or it's restricted, you know, how are we going to farm going forward? So you, you mentioned in your paper, uh, and one thing that stood out to me is, is kind of a realization is, is that maybe the value, the, the on-farm value of glyphosate is actually going down. Um, could you maybe expand on that a little bit? Yeah, certainly. Uh, well, if you look, for example, particularly at uh, in the United States, um, they have a lot of their what we call driver weeds. So these are weeds that really dictate the herbicide program, whether it's uh, Palmer amaranth in the mid and the southern U.S. or water hemp, especially, which is another amaranth species. Uh, you know, we're even looking at kochia in Western Canada, where we have uh, the majority of populations are now glyphosate resistant. When you have all this resistance to glyphosate in our very important weeds, it does decrease the value of, of glyphosate because you really have to start thinking about adding another herbicide, either usually to glyphosate to control these resistant weeds. And so it does um, reduce the value of, uh, of the herbicide to growers in terms of you know, managing all their important weeds. Now you have to look after those weeds that have become resistant to glyphosate. And that trend will only increase over time as we continue to um, apply um, so much glyphosate uh, worldwide. You know, the, if you look at the trend in glyphosate usage, despite all the resistance, it's still increasing because um, it's such an inexpensive herbicide, of course. And so uh, a lot of growers, I think they, their attitude is, okay, we're going to use it, you know, to the max um, as long as we can because, you know, we don't know how long, much longer it may be available. And it really is very inexpensive insurance uh, in terms of uh, weed control. Do, do we know whether that's, like you mentioned that the use is, is increasing even though the value is going down. Is that an increase right. per acre or is that more acres globally that are seeing glyphosate? Do we know that? Uh, I think it's more the first. I think it's more application, more intensity uh, on a per acre basis. Um, but certainly um, um, it is the second part in terms of more, more acres uh, that would also, in terms of expanding the area, that would also uh, probably be the case in some regions, but not in others. So I, and maybe we've touched on these a couple, especially when it comes to, to the to tillage, um, but I mean, we, we see benefits of glyphosate in our agricultural system. Um, tillage um, and, and maybe simplicity of a system, is there benefits that extend beyond this that we're, we're concerned about? Yeah, certainly, um, you know, one of the conclusions out of this Sydney workshop was that we may have to resort to some form of tillage if we lose glyphosate. And uh, here, in Australia, Paraquat is another burned down herbicide that's very important. Surprisingly, it's not used um, much at all in Western Canada as a burned down herbicide, but here in Australia, they commonly, in their burn down, they commonly apply glyphosate or Paraquat first, and then 
10 to 14 days later, they'll follow that up with, um, with paraquat or glyphosate. So they call this the double knock. So uh, that's to control any escapes in the first application. But certainly um, they are looking, you know, at some new, some novel aspects of tillage. For example, they've recently commercialized um, what they called a targeted tillage implement where it's, um, it's basically a cultivator with optical sensors that uh, these tines, if when they did when they detect a weed, will just chip chip at that weed. So it's very precision tillage, and so um, they estimate that it only uh, disrupts about 10% of the seed bed uh, by these very targeted, hydraulically driven uh, tines that are linked to these optical cameras on on, the, on this tillage implement. So that's an example of a technology that wasn't available, say, 20 years ago, where uh, you could use, that theoretically could be used instead of a burn down by just chipping away at the, at the weeds, assuming that you don't have a lot of weeds to, uh, to manage, of course. Uh, and also, for example, another technology is uh, moving towards low disturbance uh, disk systems. For example, there's a lot of research going on here what they call the strip and disc system. Uh, I know when I was in Canada, we we had looked at the stripper header on combines, and so that's where you just basically knock the heads off, whether it's uh, wheat or barley, and you leave a, a very high standing residue uh, stubble. And and the following year, uh, you you actually seed into that with a, a disc system, and so this the moisture conservation is. Uh, is really high. And so that's another example, maybe a very strategic tillage uh, that might be, have to be used or adopted if uh, we lose some of these burn down herbicides like glyphosate or paraquat. In, in this workshop, um, it sounds like you, you're, the, the team kind of came out with four, or sorry, five potential scenarios. Um, of, of risk and could you maybe get into those and what the likelihood of each of them being and how you got to them? Yeah, right, uh, Jeremy, we were tasked, tasked by GRDC to look at five scenarios. So the, the first scenario was uh, no burn down herbicides. So you couldn't use it in the pre-seed pre -seed window. Uh, the second one was no uh, no soil residual herbicides, uh, you know, like trifluralin or these other ones that you apply also um, before seeding. Third scenario was no post-emergence herbicides. Um, the fourth scenario was no pre-harvest application, so pre-harvest glyphosate, for example, or or Reglone. And then the last scenario was no herbicides at all, so it was basically an organic system. And so we were, you know, we were tasked in groups to look at each of these five scenarios and it was the consensus was from the group was that the highest probability of these scenarios actually you know developing in the future was highest for the the burn down or the pre-seed window and also the um, the pre-harvest window which of course um, heavily depend on glyphosate or paraquat or diquat and so it's not, if you look at, um, 
at the external factors. Um, you know, Paraquat, for example, is in the same boat as glyphosate uh, in terms of the risk of losing it. Uh, Paraquat is actually much more toxic, one of the more toxic herbicides. And so if we lose glyphosate, we'd, for sure we'd lose Paraquat. And so those two, those two uh, scenarios, uh, no burn down, no pre-harvest, we thought was the highest probability amongst the others of uh, actually uh, uh, coming to uh, fruition in the future. Was the, I guess, is the purpose of their removal from those two scenarios looking for the same end goal? Um, because I, I mean, think about pre-harvest risk of MRL issues, but as a, as a burn down, that doesn't really play. So what's, where's the alignment there? The commonality of the two was glyphosate. Um, you know, we're also asked the question at this workshop, what are the, the top three herbicides we think are most at risk of losing? And glyphosate was number one, uh, Paraquat was number two, and 2,4-D was uh, number three. And I guess you could put dicamba in that list as well. And we've seen what's happened in the U.S. with the uh, the court decision on dicamba, uh, but 2,4-D is in the same boat. That's our oldest herbicide, and so the commonality was that um, you know is basically was glyphosate is used in both of these application windows. You're right. Uh, I think the consensus was if we had to restrict our glyphosate use, it was best if if we maintain it in the burndown phase, that's where it's most important to growers. We could afford to lose it in the pre-harvest window, um, which as you say, will more likely impact the MRLs or maximum residue levels. Um, because, you know, if what we were doing was keeping this in con context of what's happening, for example, in France, France and Germany, where they do plan to ban glyphosate by the end of 2022, which is coming up soon. Uh, and so any grain exported into the European Union, um, if, if this herbicide is banned, they don't have any MRLs in place for unregistered products. So, you know, if they detect any glyphosate residues in any exported grain to the EU from whether it's Canada, Australia, they'll just turn that shipment back to country of origin and, you know, now with the de detection methods, analytical methods, they can detect down to 0.1 or 0.01 part per billion. And so, um, and so there, there would be no MRLs, there would be no thresholds. And so top of mind was the impact, potential impact on the international grain trade. And um, particularly if we, we lose some of these products like glyphosate or paraquat. Jumping into France, France was one of the focus areas of, of the paper, um, kind of looking um, briefly at, at their scenario, um, their stance, um, maybe some concerns for producers if, when that scenario does kick into place. Um, so could you delve into maybe why you picked France and, and um, maybe the, the key features of where these challenges are? Yeah, I think uh, France has been um, at the forefront in terms of thinking about this and actually the main, uh, the lead author of that um, study in France was my good friend who I had, uh, we had co-authored papers together before. And so I knew him personally. And so 
I think they had done the most extensive research into the possible impacts of losing glyphosate. And basically, there can, of course, there's concern, great concern amongst the French growers, you know, about, you know, what are we going to do if, if it's greatly restricted or an outright ban. And so, of course, their solution relied heavily upon mechanical weed control, whether it's tillage or, or cutting, mowing, uh, that type of thing. Um, more research into bioherbicides uh, was one another strategy. And uh, the use of cover crops, for example. So very ecological type of weed management. Um, and, um, and so, uh, but for them, you know, they still would, there would be consequences to, um, to losing glyphosate. So I guess what kind of consequences are we looking at for France specifically? Yeah, for, for France, uh, Jeremy, most of their glyphosate is used either in the burn down, uh, like it is in Western Canada, so before seeding, or else during their fallow phase, so between, between the crop phase. And, um, and so um, basically they have to look at, you know, how are we going to replace you know, the burn down, you know, so do we, for example, do we seed earlier and, you know, before the weeds are up um, type of thing? Or, um, and how do we control our weeds in our, in the, between the crop phases? And so, again, um, precision ag was prominently mentioned in terms of whether it's precision strategic tillage or, or weed management in general. But again, there was a, they had a whole bunch of factors that, you know, if you combine some of these, like we found in, in Western Canada, in terms of integrating some of these uh, weed management practices, that there are synergies that can be achieved. And, uh, but again, it's, it's, you don't totally replace the, the benefits of using herbicides. And so uh, there will be consequences in terms of uh, crop yield loss, uh, loss in crop quality. Um, and, you know, there, there will be some other uh, herbicides they can use to try and replace glyphosate. But, um, of course, it, uh, it'll probably cost them. The cost will be higher in terms of weed management and um, the effectiveness of weed control will will certainly be less in for some of their weeds yeah in in the paper in even more detail um you go through australia's scenario um where the potential losses were being and, and we've kind of hit on them a few uh in the, some of those few scenarios um, and i guess looking at you know france's situation and, and their um agroclimate and their their uh, agricultural system compared to Australia I would imagine there's a lot of contrast there so you know what's Australia looking at um, where are you guys seeing the biggest potential impact uh, of a loss um, and where yeah I guess where are you guys looking at the biggest impact we um, we ran some models simulations here in Western Australia uh, using the rim model which has been around for about 20 years so it's it's the ryegrass integrated weed management model and it's a bioeconomic model which has been you know road tested quite a long time so it's it's quite a good model uh, in lieu of actually doing the research um, and so 
you know, the cropping systems here in Western Australia are very similar to Western Canada. The top crop is uh, wheat, spring wheat, uh, and then barley, and then canola. So um, similar to Western Canada. We don't have lentils or field pea, but we do have uh, lent uh, lupins make up the number four crop. So we ran this model simulation uh, looking at scenarios with and without glyphosate um, in the preceding as well as the pre-harvest phase uh, in terms of uh, ryegrass control. And ryegrass is the number one uh, top wheat here in, in Western Australia and actually across the country. So it was just one weed. But um, uh, we found that the consensus also from the workshop was that if we lose glyphosate, there would be a move towards even earlier seeding because you want to seed before you know the weeds come up and so and that trend has been going on here for 20 years and it's sort of the same trend in western canada you you want to get the crop in the ground as soon as you can because it's a short growing season and so uh early early seeding actually here in western australia also increases crop yield potential because um when we seed here in starting in april um, as we go into its reverse here, so as we go into June, July, uh, we're going into winter, and so it's actually getting cooler and cooler. And so the yield potential is greatest with early seeding. So early seeding uh, combined with um, some of our new pre-emergence soil residual herbicides like a pyroxysulfone, which has become very important, and that's sort of a new herbicide here, relatively recent, and some others. Um, we were able to show in these model simulations that, you know, we can actually farm without glyphosate. Um, although, you know, there are consequences in terms of, you know, we don't get the same level of, of weed control as we did with glyphosate. But in terms of profitability, uh, we can still maintain our profitability without glyphosate. But certainly, um, uh, in terms of farming, it, it, it does create a few challenges in terms of weed management. All right. Thanks for listening to part one of our conversation with Dr. Q Becky regarding his recently published paper, Farming Without Glyphosate. We will return to the second half of our chat in part two. Remember to like, subscribe, and share the podcast if you've enjoyed.